Good evening, everyone. My name is Mary Pat Donahue. I am currently the Executive Director of the Secretariat of Catholic Education at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops here in Washington, D.C. Previously, I was Director of School Services for the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, and I am currently a member of the Board of Directors of the Institute. And it is in that capacity that I welcome you on behalf of our President, Michael Van Hecke, our staff, and our board members to this evening's panel discussion, Confronting the Crisis of Faith and Reason, Reclaiming Authentic Catholic Education. First, let me offer a hearty thank you to Father Charles Truyal and the staff of the Catholic Information Center for partnering with the Institute in this important discussion. The Institute for Catholic Liberal Education is the only entity currently working to assist Catholic schools in rediscovering and restoring the intellectual tradition of liberal education that is our heritage. Once discovered, teachers and students alike enjoy the freedom that accompanies the joyful pursuit of faith, wisdom, and virtue. Founded over 10 years ago, their work has expanded to include a growing number of parochial schools and dioceses. The dedicated staff of the ICLE offers formation, practical training, and fellowship to principals and administrators seeking a new, old way. Our panelists this evening include Dr. Robert Royal, founder and president of the Faith and Reason Institute here in Washington, D.C., and editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing. Dr. Royal is the author of many works focusing on American civil life, as well as the Catholic faith and experience, including 1492 and All That, Political Manipulations of History, The Catholic Martyrs of the 20th Century, A Comprehensive Global History, The Pope's Army, and The God That Did Not Fail. He has taught at Brown University, Rhode Island College, and the Catholic University of America. He has received fellowships to study in Italy from both the Renaissance Society of America and as a Fulbright Scholar. We welcome Dr. Royal. Let us also welcome Dr. Michael Hanby, Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute, also in Washington, DC. Dr. Hanby came to the Institute from Baylor University, where he was Assistant Professor of Theology an associate director of the Baylor Institute for Faith and Learning. Prior to that, he was an Arthur J. Ennis Fellow in Humanities at Villanova University. Professor Hanby is the author of the 2013 monograph, No God, No Science, Theology, Cosmology, and Biology, as well as Augustine and Modernity. He has authored several articles appearing in Communio, Modern Theology, Proecclesia, and theology today. Let's welcome Dr. Hanby. And we, rounding out our panel, we have with us Elizabeth Sullivan, currently Executive Director of the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education. A former journalist, Beth found her passion for Catholic liberal education while exploring authentic formation in faith and reason for her own children. Beth became involved in Catholic education at the local level, serving on boards and researching curricula. She taught literature and writing at St. John Bosco School in East Rochester, New York, 
an independent Catholic classical school where she also served as director of communications. Beth is a Searcy certified classical teacher after having completed a three-year apprenticeship program. She holds a bachelor's in humanities from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a master's from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Welcome, Beth Sullivan. And our moderator this evening is Mary Rice Hassan, the Cato Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, DC. She also directs the Catholic Women's Forum, a network of Catholic professional women and scholars seeking to amplify the voice of Catholic women in support of human dignity, authentic freedom, and Catholic social teaching. Mary was the keynote speaker for the Holy See during the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women in both 2017 and 2018. She speaks frequently at national conferences, including the 2017 Catholic Medical Association Conference and the 2017 National Council of Catholic Women Conference. Mary has contributed to numerous publications and journals, including The Federalist, The Washington Examiner, Our Sunday Visitor, and First Things. Let's give a warm welcome to our moderator, and I will turn it over to her now, Mary Rice Hassan. Thanks so much, Mary Pat. And thank you all for being here. I think this is an important conversation um, for the future of our country, for the future of our church. And so I want to set the stage a little bit um, before we get into some of the positives about what we can do, what we can expect, what, what we want to see in Catholic education. So the first question might be, why, why Catholic education? And I'm going to approach it from sort of the back end and give you two stats to think about. One, almost 90% of Catholic children attend public schools, not Catholic schools. Okay, they're educated from kindergarten through 12th grade, basically, 90% of them. Well, in times past, you might think, that was okay. That worked out in terms of our faith. People kept their faith, and the schools weren't um, undermining it, weren't undercutting it. Now, there's been a lot of controversy about public schools, certainly for decades. But what's the fruit of this? What are we seeing now, and what do we have to worry about? The second stat I want you to think about is a stat from the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. And the stat's about five years old, but it, it was a survey of millennials. And of those who attended Catholic schools, close to 40% were um, weekly mass goers. In other words, they basically continued to practice their faith, about 40% of those who attended Catholic schools. Now, of course, we wish that were much higher. But what is the st statistic for those who attend public schools? Of millennials, only 5% of Catholics who attended public schools continue to go to Mass once a week. In other words, are faithfully practicing Catholics. That should give us pause because that's the millennial generation. We're now down to the next generation, which is less religious, less surrounded by peers who even have an experience of faith to the point that sociologists talk about irreligious socialization, which is what most of our children are experiencing in the public school environment. So 
So I want to give you um, three reasons, basically, why I believe that the public schools are no longer even a possibility for Catholic children, that it's simply become untenable for Catholic children to be educated in public schools, at least if we hope for them to come out as practicing Catholic Catholics. And my sister and I, uh, Teresa Farnan, wrote a, a book with a very timid title called Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Kids from Public Schools Before It's Too Late, uh, which is here in the, in the CIC bookstore. But the first three chapters of, of that book, we focus on the problem of gender ideology, which is the first reason why Catholic schools or why public schools are no longer an acceptable possibility for our children. And the things you need to understand are this. Whereas for many of us who grew up, um, we're, we were sort of familiar with the sex ed wars in public schools, right? Your parents didn't want you to have sex ed. There were opt-outs. People fought the fight. And you could still sort of, at least if you had um, a child who came from a well-formed family and they, they were of strong temperament, they could kind of make it through the public schools. What's different today is that gender ideology is being baked into the culture of the public schools. There is no opt-out. And so you might say, well, what's the big deal? I'm not worried about my child becoming transgender. Well, here's why it matters. Because gender ideology at heart is fundamentally a false anthropology. It tells our children that the answer to the most basic question of who am I is something that is completely incompatible with the Christian vision of the human person. So Christian anthropology, who we are, is written into our faith. And it's, it's the most basic thing about us. But the public school system right now is teaching our children a false vision of who they are. And there's no way to escape. As I said, it's baked into the culture of the school. And it starts from pre-K to kindergarten all the way through. You need to learn the definitions because we have to create a safe, supportive, and inclusive environment and, and all these things. You can read the book for the, the specific details. We have a lot of research in there. So that's the first reason that fundamentally the public schools are promoting a false anthropology. It, gives our, it tells our kids a lie about who they are. The second reason is that parents are kept in the dark. That you as a parent in today's public schools no longer have the opportunity to protect your children from the influences, from the ideas that you don't want baked into their thinking, into their understanding of who they are. And we see this particularly in school regulations where pertaining to gender ideology, it's considered a violation of the child's privacy if, you tell the if the school tells the parent that the child has come to school and, and wants to be called a name you know, of the opposite sex or to dress like the opposite sex, that only if the child gives permission can the school go ahead and tell you you know, hey, should, should we change the records or, or whatever? So you can, and there have been some court cases on this, but the reality is this. When your child walks through those doors, you don't know what's going to be influencing them, and you have no ability to protect them. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that our public schools have, well, 
Think of it this way. If we live by faith, if faith is the air that we breathe, our children are suffocating in public schools. Not because there aren't good teachers, people who may be real genuine Christians or Catholics and, and principals who are like that, but they wear a straitjacket in the public school. So in the public school, God is absent. The authority is science or technology. And God is not part of the consideration of the big questions of life. So our children become habituated throughout the day, day after day, week after week, year after year, to living as if God did not exist. So three reasons why, Catholic, why public schools are simply untenable for Catholic children, at least if we hope to raise them in the faith. So that raises the question, well, then what? If 80, you know, close to 90% of Catholic children are in public schools, where, where can they go? How do we educate all those kids? What's the vision for Catholic education? And we're fortunate today that we have a panel of, of three just tremendous thinkers and experts who are going to answer that question. So I'm going to turn it over right now to uh, Bob Royal and let him uh, give you a vision for, for what we want our kids to have. Well, thank you, Mary. Uh, I've got to ask your indulgence. I've, I've got a bit of a cold, and I just had to walk 15 blocks. I left my wife in the car 15 blocks away from here. So um, I hope you can hear me. If you can't, just let me know. I'll try to speak up a, a little bit more. Now, our subject tonight is confronting the crisis of faith and reason, which I'm very happy to speak about because it was 19 years ago this month that I founded the Faith and Reason Institute here in Washington, D.C., after working at Ethics and Public Policy Center for almost 20 years. And I wanted at that moment to highlight a bit, this was one year after uh, John Paul II had written Fides et Ratio, and I wanted to highlight that approach to uh, both faith and reason here in Washington. And I have to confess that I calculated that there is neither an excess of faith nor of reason in this town, and so they were both growth industries, and I'd never go out of business. <laughs> and I was right. I'm still here uh, today. So um, I want to speak a bit about faith and reason in the public square, which the organizers have asked me to do. But I also, before I'm done, want to warn us a little bit about approaching this question of Catholic education with an idea that it is a prop for a democratic republic, because that way of approaching things instrumentalizes what we're about. And particularly now, in the kind of society that we, we live in, very ably described by Mary just now, um, it's going to be very hard to prevail with that argument. People don't like arguments to begin with. And that particular argument is going to be a sectarian argument. And we ought to prepare ourselves and recognize that as universal as we think the truths are of the church and their importance, to, to our American society, we are likely to be in a kind of cultural ghetto, if not catacombs, for a while. And so we should prepare ourselves and do what we can to um, preserve what is good in our tradition uh, in the meantime. Now, it's very easy to talk about religion in the abstract in the American founding. If you go to any of the founders, if you go down to any of the monuments on the mall, you'll see quotations from them about God. And in fact, this is so prevalent that we run a program in the Slovak Republic every summer. I'm surprised, actually, there are two 
students who have been there. Joseph is here, and I saw Cindy Searcy uh, walking around. Um, and one of the things I do with them is I say, who said so-and-so? For example, I say to them, who said no nation has ever been governed without religion, nor can be? Anybody? Yeah, it, could be, it could be Washington. It could have been any of them. It happens to be Jefferson, because they all kind of shared this basic understanding of the importance of religiosity to the public's, public order. <clears throat> but I want to start in a different place than the immediate practicality, because that practicality, as Professor Hanby has taught me, is a snare and a delusion. Um, Nietzsche says somewhere that every idea has its autobiography. And my own engagement with a kind of a classical Christian education came from almost one experience. I was a junior in high school at this time of year. It was after football season, so I didn't have to go to practice. I was walking out among the leaves in New England, colored leaves in New England, having just read Virgil's Aeneid in last last period in high school. And I had this overwhelming sense of being part of this larger story than myself. And since people like stories these days, since argument and fact seem to gain no traction in the public square, I think it's important for all of us who care about these things to be able to convey that to the students. I mean, we have experts in this room, I'm sure, about structures of curricula and, and approaches and languages and whatnot. But that, that fire, that touching something really deep that gives you a sense of something larger than yourself, I believe, is going to be absolutely essential in the future because it's really what is going to carry over um, those truths, those disciplines in a culture and with some of our own children uh, in ways that are incalculable. I think when, uh, whenever I bring this up, I like to quote the, the line from Stephen Hawking. You remember Stephen Hawking once said that we have all these equations in physics. I started university as a physicist, so maybe I'm a little sensitive to this. We have all these equations in physics, but what is the fire that gave the reality to these equations, you know, the world that the, the, for the, of these equations? Well, anybody who's classically trained knows that this is exactly to get things backwards. The equations come from our study of the world. We study and discover truths and, and universal principles, and maybe even timeless principles by our engagement with the world. And it's the the existence of that initial fire that created the world that gives us something even to study in the first place. And I think we have to be able to convey that to our students where we can. Um, it's only going to be in these, these enclaves, what you know, Benedict XVI called creative minorities, that we're going to be able to preserve this at all. And we've got to be able to communicate that, um, that fire to our, our own children within our own institutions. Now, um, I want to say that part of our problem just now is sort of a double bind that all the humanities teaching finds itself in. On the one hand, Mary mentioned this, and I think you did as well. We, we live in a scientific and technical society, I'm sure Michael is going to talk about this, in which we think only that the only truths that there are are scientific and practical truths. And that's one problem at a very high philosophical level that we have to deal with. But the other problem is induced within the humanities themselves. I have a PhD in comparative literature, so I can tell you that in that discipline, you come across the most bizarre 
academic things you could possibly ever find. And I remember when I was reading for my dissertation, this is already decades ago, coming out of line in which a literary critic said, if we take race, class, and gender out of our appreciation of texts, what else is there? Well, I don't know. Uh, coming into the world and being alive? And what does death mean? And journeys end in lovers' meeting? Or the sun that moves the sun and other stars in heaven? And he I mean, there are all sorts of things, of course, that are out there. And I, I, I can't say enough that even within the, the disciplines of the humanities, the way that the humanities have already handicapped themselves and have transmitted that to the culture, as we know, because everything now has become politicized and it's a matter of power. It's a kind of a Nietzschean idea of power. While that's the case, it becomes very difficult to convey anything outside of those categories. Now, class, of course, you, know, you can deal with, with questions of, of, uh, of social position and of wealth. You can deal with questions of race. I myself think that this gender ideology stuff, which Pope Francis has called a, a kind of an ideological colonization of the West of other places, I think we're going to find out in the long term that people are going to think of gender ideology within a short while the same way they think about phrenology and the fact that there used to be canals on Mars, we thought, and, and other such nonsense. It's, a, it, it's madness, it's a fad, and it's a fraud. So, part of the way that we get the magic, we communicate the magic, is to get a, to clear away these two reductionist ways of uh, of looking at the world. Um, and I think we need to emphasize for ourselves that what we are trying to convey to students, we can convey information, we can train them in all sorts of disciplines, but ultimately, we, what we want to convey to them is something that the old Soviet dissidents used to talk about, and that is living in truth. Because you can have scientific truths, you can even have philosophical and theological truths, but if you don't live those, if you don't see people actually living those, if you don't see your teachers inspired by those things, I don't think they get conveyed to, to students. One of, my, uh, one of my dear friends once told me, he, he, he was a uh, not a musician himself, but he was a great appreciator of classical music. And I asked him one time, whatever drove you to become so engaged with the full range of classical music? And he said, I had a professor in college and he, in, a, in a, a music course. And he said, when he would put the record on and listen to it, I would look at his face and I would see that something was happening to him. And I said to myself, I want that. I think that's an important lesson for us to, to I want to end, and we can talk about some of these things more, with, with um, a passage from Cardinal Newman. I remember in the, the idea of a university, Cardinal Newman talks about all the disciplines in the university, which ought to include philosophy and theology. He thinks those are academic subjects that can be studied even in a secular context, that they have a justification for a secular context. But he says, look, we shouldn't assume that these academic, intellectual practices are the same thing as creating good Christians. That they produce gentlemen and gentlewomen, they give us a, a greater cultural reach, they take us out of our, the ignorance of ourselves and we engage the world better. But he says it's not the same thing as producing saints. It produces polished, cultured individuals. 
And the reason he, th he doesn't think that that works is, this is a passage that I, I memorized the minute I read it years ago, is that we live in a world, as we know as Catholics, that has fallen and is under the reign of original sin. So he says, quarry the granite rocks with razors, or moor the vessel with a thread of silk. Then may you contend with such keen and delicate instruments against those giants, the passion and the pride of man. The 19th century knew how to write sentences. And <laughs> we're all going to read sentences like that a lot more when he becomes a, a, a saint. I want to emphasize again, because we're in Washington, D.C., and some of you may be here for the first time or just visiting, that we don't pursue those things for the sake of politics or for the sake of anything. We pursue the good. We, we, we are in relationship to God because he's God. And all the other things that we do, the things that we study, the, the way that we break down our disciplines and, and create curricula to convey various human truths should be oriented towards serving that. It's the old gospel story that you, if you have the one thing needful, then all the other things fall into place after that. Now, I want to say again, I'm not optimistic about our circumstance. Uh, the old Soviet dissidents talked about living in truth, as I said, and it was easier for them in a way. John Paul II was much more effective against the Soviet Union than he was against the culture of death. I think we ought to put that very bluntly. But it was easier because you had an ideology that you could look to. What we have in the West is a much more insidious and subtle influence. And, and my two predecessors here, I think, outlined some of that very nicely. Uh, it's difficult to know what is this odd culture that the millennials have absorbed. Although from the stories I hear from people who have to manage them in all sorts of different places, <coughs> in the military and business and whatnot, there's something very odd going on. But we have to stay clear that the reason why we pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful is for their own sake. And that in our circumstances right now, even if that has only a small influence over small groups like ours, this is an absolute necessity for our time that we keep this alive and, and try to draw in more and more people. And in the long run, of course, God has, Jesus has conquered the world. In the long run, this is what will come back and bring us a civilization that we can really be proud of again. So thank you. That was excellent. Thank you, and, and thanks for the invitation. I feel very fortunate to be here, as I, too, abandoned my car somewhere on the other side of town that I'll have to find. Uh, glad to see people uh, uh, trickling in with uh, the traffic being what it is. Um, you know, it's it, it's all but obvious, um, or it's obvious to all but the most ideological or indifferent that the church itself, uh, in our time, is undergoing a deep crisis. Um, and since the church is the mother of our civilization, no matter how ungrateful or wayward or rebellious her children may become, crisis in the church means civilizational crisis as well. Um, and I don't mean principally the crisis of abuse or Episcopal corruption or doctrinal confusion or even the fact that certain high-profile priests publicly flaunts a view of human life and love fundamentally at odds with the Catholic understanding of man and creation. 
All of that, of course, is very serious, and our children's children will likely have to endure and sort through the consequences, um, which makes it all but certain that a hoped for, any hoped for renewal of Catholic life will come from below uh, and not from above. Nevertheless, all of these are, are symptoms. They're, they're not the disease. Um, the disease, if you will, was one provocation, at least, for the Second Vatican Council, and it was keenly recognized by John Paul II and Benedict XVI as the eclipse of the sense of God and man in the modern age. The loss of a Catholic mind, even within the church, you might call it the secularization of the church itself, God no longer enters into our fundamental apprehension of the world, but is treated even under the, with the best of intentions as a moral or pietistic addendum to empirical or experimental or sociological or political ways of thinking that are, fun, that are functionally atheistic. And our civilizational crisis is, of course, also an educational crisis. Um, this is unsurprising. A culture that can no longer agree on what a human being is or whether men and women are even real can hardly be expected to agree on what education is. And so modern education has largely come to consist in rigorously not asking this or any other fundamental questions. Its purpose, as C.S. Lewis divined in numerous places, but perhaps most beautifully in The Silver Chair, is no longer to lead us out of the darkness or the deception or the confusion of Plato's cave, but rather to enforce the prevalent idea that the cave is all there is, that there is nothing more to this world than buying and selling, than politics and technology, than sports and fashion and celebrity, nothing more to hope for than perhaps a comfortable and anesthetized life, or maybe the latest gee whiz technological wonder, <clears throat> that there are really no great heights or depths to be contemplated, nothing truly beautiful or good to love, nothing even truly wicked to hate, except perhaps intolerance, that there's nothing great to hope in or to live or even sacrifice for. And so it's small wonder, really, uh, that contemporary education so often fails even by its own meager pragmatic standards. Uh, and it's no accident, or it is an accident, that anyone comes through contemporary education system properly educated at all. But, and I really mean that. If you receive a proper education today, it is by accident or by uh, uh, providence, uh, which is usually only recognizable in retrospect. Fortunately, time prevents me from going into all the ways that the public school plus religion class model of Catholic education uh, from the era of brick-and-mortar Catholicism has unwittingly acquiesced in all of this. I don't think that simply opting for Catholic over secular public education is enough when Catholic education itself is so often deeply secularized and largely indistinguishable in how it understands the world from its secular counterpart. Well, when a group of us set out to save St. Jerome Parish School from closure in 2009, 2010, 
We wanted above all to give our students, our children, um, something better than this to love. We believed that the point of education was not different from the point of human life. To see God, if only through a glass and darkly, and to see in things something of what God sees. We believe that there is indeed something too to see, and in fact, infinite depths to see, since all the world is in fact creation. The idea that it makes no difference whether we are creatures loved into being, no difference to education, whether we be creatures known and loved into being by God or the products of a dim and monstral oval germ that laid itself by accident, in Chesterton's words, is, is, is astounding. We believe that all human beings implicitly long for this and that, it is, and that it is this quest for God, which often goes for, under other names like empire or freedom or peace, that really animates human civilization. We believe that you can understand a people's gods by looking at its cultural artifacts, at what it makes and how it organizes its space and what it devotes its energies to, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. We believed that God both came to answer and to inflame this desire in the Incarnation and that he left us the church as the way to its ultimate fulfillment and that this is decisive for the meaning of human history. The point of convergence for Rome, Athens, and Jerusalem and the point of reference toward which every succeeding age must take a stand and from which it will derive its meaning. We therefore set out in creating a curriculum to cultivate what is most human in our children, the capacity for wonder and for memory and for attention, capacities without which it is finally impossible to know or to pray or to love. We set out to teach them to read and to write and to think and to make the great existential questions animating human civilization their own questions, since these questions are already beating deep within the human breast somewhere all precisely by incorporating them into the great tradition of Christian humanism, by giving them the language and the art and the architecture and the music and the literature that is their birthright as Catholics and as children of the West. A birthright which also happens to be, despite whatever tarnish may be on it, the most beautiful thing in the world. We wanted to help them see nature through the eyes of wonder and love as something good, mysterious, as the good, mysterious, resplendent creation that it is, and not first as something to be taken apart and worked upon. We wanted them to begin to think philosophically and historically about science, about what science is, about what kinds of truths it delivers, so as not to fall victim to the scientism that dominates and stupefies our culture. And we wanted them to know themselves as they really are, as children of God, that they might live lives free from enslavement to lies, to fashion, to their appetites, to their vices or their devices, and a life lived joyfully and courageously and even sacrificially in the light of God's goodness and truth. These same ambitions, by the way, also animate uh, the St. Jerome Institute, which is an independent liberal arts high school 
set to open uh, here in Brookland in 2019. I have some information that I'd be happy uh, to share with you after this at the reception, or you can meet our new headmaster, who Peter Crawford, who is, who is here. And we can talk uh, perhaps concretely in question and hours about uh, question and answer about um, how we are, were and are attempting to realize these aspirations in both schools. How St. Jerome Academy, for instance, cycles through the history of the world twice, devoting two years each to the Greeks and the Romans and the Middle Ages um, to help children enter in imaginatively into another civilization and to understand the roots of their own or how St. Jerome Institute will integrate great books and art history along both historical or anthematic lines and bring natural philosophy to bear on the study of science. And it's, it's also important, I think, to say that um, these are, are just some of the many hopeful signs of a broader renewal, which I'm sure Beth will talk about. Um, St. Jerome Academy, in fact, is only now one of several St. Jerome schools around the country, and these form only one part of a broader movement of renewal. Um, my son's present high school, the Heights, is introducing natural philosophy later this year for the first time, which is a huge step. Um, and of course, there likely would be no movement for renewal in Catholic education um, without uh, the long and underappreciated efforts of now of a whole generation of homeschoolers uh, who deserve a long overdue thank you um, for, from the rest of us uh, uh, for keeping things afloat. Even so, um, the work that is in front of us is um, enormous and daunting. There is so much thinking to be done. Um, both about, still to be done, both about what education actually is, uh, how to undertake it uh, in a way that is uh, uh, both rigorous um, uh, and also um, deep, how to integrate uh, science back into a more comprehensive understanding of wisdom, how to recover a sense of nature uh, that is not merely functional, uh, how to awaken children, to create the sense of adventure that will awaken them uh, from the stupor of a world that presents virtual reality as more exciting than reality itself. Um, a, a world of HD TVs that are clearer than reality. Um, it's very difficult. And for, for all of these reasons, uh, and many others that have already been alluded to, some have taken to calling ours um, a new dark age. Uh, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. I've been thinking a lot lately about, uh, about Romans 1, um, about the connection that St. Paul draws between renouncing the truth of God and the darkening of the human mind and how hard it is to regain your sight after you've gouged your eyes out. But somehow, slowly, um, we must begin to do that. And our attempts to do that, education must surely be at the foundation and at the heart of them if, as the Lord says, we can only enter the kingdom by becoming his children. Thank you, Michael. Don't you envy me following these two? <laughs> I'm basically here to testify to 
the hope that we are seeing from this vision, this more human vision of education, and the hope, that the hope that's evident because children respond almost immediately to the difference. So um, our institute has been um, training teachers for about a dozen years. We give programs, we go into schools, and here's what we're seeing. All these dedicated people who have, gone in, who have been called to the vocation of Catholic education, they through no fault of their own, they simply haven't been given this vision. For the last 50 years, all teacher training has been fundamentally secular, which means it's a very constricted vision of the world. It's a world without God. And so that the education as we've seen, the education most of us had is very fragmented. It doesn't show any unity in reality. And so this is a project to put all of that back together. And what I would say is um, I see three differences in some of these schools and the way this is being um, absorbed and approached. And, and I can't um, overstate how much the St. Jerome Educational Plan and its beautiful vision came at just the right time. I was at that time teaching at a small fledgling Catholic school in upstate New York that had been founded with this vision. But at that time, there was a lot of piecemeal curricular material and no comprehensive vision from a Catholic point of view. Um, Mary Pat and I wound up on the same retreat just as the St. Jerome Educational Plan came hot off the press. And we were able to use it. It saved our little school. And now there are um, probably at least a dozen, if not more, schools using this around the country. But here's the difference. I think most Catholic schools understand that we're, we're more than about just college and career readiness. We understand that um, we want to inculcate virtue in our children. So I might categorize that. I'll use three Greek words here to sort of delineate what we're seeing. So let's call it ethos, OK? So character and virtue is something that's in almost every Catholic school. But there's two gaping holes that were touched on by Dr. Hanby. The, the other one, the biggest one, and the biggest change that we see, I'd call it mythos, right? This whole idea of story that uh, Dr. Royal also touched on. The minute our children can see ourselves in their story as, this, as salvation history from the beginning of the world with the incarnation as the pivotal point in history and all of uh, the Greeks, the Romans, all of the ancient world leading up to this moment, and then everything after it as a turning toward or a turning away from God, they're able to see themselves in the, the drama of every human life. <coughs> and so they're seeing, and they're also seeing themselves in the pilgrim church on earth. They're seeing themselves as um, born into this time and place with a mission. So there's an excitement about it, this whole idea of story and, and all of the cultural things that are added into that. The story of the church in the world, of the scientific and cultural discoveries, but in a chronological way. Because think of how we've all gotten history and bits and bites with the 13 colonies basically over and over and over again every year without understanding what we've been dropped into. So I think story is the biggest thing that affects them. And when you think about it, every, every discipline is a story. So mathematics. Mathematics is a story about the discovering of God's order in the world. So chemistry, and to see these things, to see reality as God made it. Because the world is a different place through the lens of faith. So the next thing I would call logos, the sense that Jesus Christ is the ordering principle of the universe to whom the ancient, for whom the ancients searched. They called it the Logos. And 
when we understand that in him we live and move and have our being, that nothing exists in this world without him, then we begin to look for the connections between things. We see pattern, we see order in everything, in language, in number, in, uh, in nature. And it's a whole different experience for a child. I mean, I have my students, um, my own son saying, Mom, chemistry is so cool. It's like God's coding for the universe. Or, you know, have you ever thought about the, the connections between the inside of an atom and the solar system? So they're looking for pattern and order and meaning, and then everything is a discovery. So very quickly, you see these places turn into very joyful communities of learning. And what you don't hear is, is this going to be on the test? Because it's not about studying for the test. It's about this growing knowledge of the, um, of the complexity and the beauty of the world that God made and an understanding of us as human beings in it and a glimpse of him. And it becomes alive. So I would call this, and the thing that's been missing from our schools, I would call the sacramental imagination, the ability to see ourselves in the world, to understand that God's providence in the world, the battle of Lepanto, the possibility of miracle. Without this, I just don't know how they can fully grasp the real presence of God in the Eucharist, of Christ in the Eucharist. They need a sacramental imagination because we live in this constricted, uh, time of scientism that is very limiting to them. But it changes almost immediately and you see joy. And you also see the teachers freed. You know, some of them are nervous about this in the beginning because it feels unfamiliar. They haven't been classically educated. They're not, but it's not about that. It really is about seeing God in all things. So it's about learning to observe and to name and to remember kind of in that order. And it's really very simple. And as the teachers embrace it and play with it, because it's so human, the children respond almost immediately. So whole school communities are being transformed. And interestingly, we have non-Catholics coming to the schools because of what you, you saw, the love, the joy. It's contagious. And so these become um, these amazing communities. I want to leave some time for questions. Great. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I, those were wonderful presentations. I want to start with just sort of a, a high-level question and, and then get down to a practical one, and then we'll open it up to, um, to questions. So you were, um, both of you, especially Michael and, and uh, Robert, you were talking about um, the tendency within our culture to be utilitarian, to even look at education from a utilitarian perspective. What's it good for? And you deal with people who are world leaders, people who are leaders in the church, leaders in the culture. Um, Michael, you're dealing in a, you know, an educational environment at St. Jerome's. You were dealing with parents. You're dealing with training teachers. How do, you, how do you create a market in a culture where people perhaps don't even know um, how their thinking has changed? In other words, you talk to the average Catholic parent they may listen to what you're saying, and that sounds good, but uh, maybe I'm not convinced. You know, it's, it's, I, they don't have the vision. So, Robert, if each of you could address it from sort of your constituencies, how do you give that vision in a, in a world that is so utilitarian-oriented? How do you give that bigger vision? Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't rely much on high-level 
political or religious leaders for that matter. Um, look, the truth has a way of communicating itself to, to people. And the most important thing is to get them exposed to it in the, in the first place. Um, an awful lot of people, I think, in the world right now know that we're in trouble, know that we're in deep trouble as, as a culture, but they don't know where to turn. Now, there's a funny line in one of Walker Percy's books where he says that the most likely convert in the modern world is Sven Svensson, who is a biologist in Sweden who uh, has just completed an experiment and he sees the world as utterly meaningless and he ought to really commit suicide, but he's just ironic enough that he won't do it and he's ready for the search. I, my, I myself don't understand why so many parents are reluctant to even engage in self-preservation by getting their kids into circumstances that are more um, salubrious all around. They want to take easy solutions like so-called sex ed. My, my own daughter went to a sex ed program years ago in Fairfax County, which is a, a county just on the other side of the river that is affluent and has people, Republicans and Democrats. And they had an opt-out. Um, you could opt out of the, the sex ed program back then. And my daughter, high school girl, says, Dad, I don't want to be weird. Right? And I said, no, 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 don't worry. There'll be all sorts of people who don't want their kids in this uh, program. So she goes into the library, because that's what you did. You read a text in the library as an alternative. And there was one boy in there. And he was the son of the vice president of Chuck Colson's prison ministry, Nancy Percy, who was a friend of mine. But I think people just don't under, they don't know this. And we, we're going to be, I said it during my own remarks, we're going to be an embattled minority. We shouldn't fool ourselves about this. It's going to be that for a while. But I think once things get to a certain level of disastrousness, we're fallen and sinful creatures, but we're maybe not entirely corrupt like the Calvinists think. So <laughs> grace has an idea and providence has an idea for us. I don't know. I have no, I have no more practical advice than that. Mike? Um, I think the way you put the question was, was how do you create a market for this or something along those lines. And, and I, I, my first answer would that, to that would be by not worrying about creating a market or not worrying about a market. By which I mean, you don't ask people what you, they want and try and create something that they that they say they want. You create um, the most beautiful thing possible. You know, you imagine the perfect city, um, and then you show people that this is really what they wanted all along. They just didn't have a name for it. Um, and that's in the very it's in the very nature of beauty, and it's in the very nature of truth to be compelling in that way. So what Bob said earlier in his presentation about about these things being good uh, for uh, their own sake and not as means to an end is absolutely fundamental. And it's remarkable how little of that kind of thinking there is in our culture, and how very very difficult it is for us really to believe in and adhere to intrinsic goods. Um, goods that are ends and not means. Um, we have a, you know, a real confusion about, about uh, uh, means and ends, and virtually everything is a means to no particular good end whatsoever. So there's that. By really putting first principles first, uh, creating the most beautiful thing imaginable, and trusting it. And if it, if, it's, if it really is beautiful and it's really true, it will, it will succeed. And if it's not, 
I mean, someone will find it and someone will love it. And if it's not, it probably doesn't deserve to. That's the first thing. But then the second thing I would say is, you know, I, in talking to parents, you know, I've, I've asked them the same question that we asked ourselves when we sat down to create the original St. Jerome's plan, which is, what do we hope for our children? You know, who do we, and, and not in the sense of, you know, what kinds of careers do we hope that they'll have, but what kinds of men and women do we really hope that they'll grow up to be? And when you really stop to reflect upon that question, most of the answers that, that virtually every form of education provides just immediately appear superficial. I mean, we want them to, to be honest and, to, to, and steadfast and uh, faithful to, to God and to their own, to, to who they are and to the truth and to their, their, their spouses. We want them to be good husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. I mean, it's, amazing, it's remarkable how little education concerns itself with that question at all other than to try and encourage children to postpone becoming mothers and fathers indefinitely. I mean, what, how would it change education if we, if we asked the question of, of what, is, what, what, what is it, would it mean to raise a good father or a good mother, and therefore to raise the, the, the sexes in relation to each other and to form them? Um, most parents deep down somewhere still really want the human things for their children. And uh, by creating the most human education possible I, you know, and, and trusting in that, I think it, it, it will and has and does um, commend itself. I wonder if there isn't a, um, an extra step you have to take people through. Because when I talk to parents and, and you try to tap into what, what do they want for their kids, the thing I hear most is, I want my kid to be happy. And they don't necessarily connect that with the larger vision of good, God, truth, you know. And so I suppose that's an evangelistic moment to have that conversation or? It, it, it is to ask, what, well, what does that consist in? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I've told prospective St. Jerome parents is, you know, a, a child who goes through this and really succeeds at it will be able to do anything he or she wants, but what do they want? I mean, if, if you're concerned with them, with their happiness, you should be concerned with their desires. You should be concerned that they love and want and desire good things for themselves. And, to, and that they are, have the capacity to judge and distinguish between what is really good and what merely seems good. And, you know, you can open up those kinds of conversations with parents. They're receptive to it. Elizabeth, what about... Um... I would just say that the joy is contagious. And so what's happening is one school tries it in a, in a city, let's say St. Louis, suddenly three other schools are asking, what is this about? Because the word goes out Suddenly, the children are sitting at the dinner table talking about the Emperor Justinian, and the dads are rifling through the backpacks at night trying to catch up because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> Do you know? So the children are, are speaking about what they're learning at their dinner table. They're excited. They're making connections. And so it's really spreading by word of mouth quite a bit because they understand there's got to be more than the worksheet. <coughs> you know, why are bright, inquisitive children bored out of their minds in school by third grade. Something's really fundamentally wrong. And why are they on a hamster wheel? Because all they're doing, all we're doing is asking them to memorize facts for short term, in their short term memory. We're not teaching them to think. But a return to the, the liberal arts is actually teaching them to think. So you had mentioned in your remarks that you know, most 
teacher training, most teacher education is on a secular model. Mm -hmm. Even people who come out or perhaps go to a Catholic school that has an education program or whatever, it's, it's a secular model. So taking a teacher who comes out of that and you've got this vision for the school, it's got to be mediated through the teachers. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you communicate that, catch them up so that they can in turn pass that on in what, a three-week training? Well, well, we're amazed. You know, we, um, it takes a half an hour for us to agree on, the vi agree on the vision. What do we want for our children? This is so much greater. The rest of it is really just how. How, how do we do this? And a lot of it, I think a lot of it is pedagogy. A lot of it is how do you awaken wonder? You do it with the art of the question. You learn how to have a conversation with children where you are allowing them to discover. The first thing I learned as a journalist was show, don't tell. So try not to tell them as many things, as, but awaken their wonder, create that gap, as Simone Weil has said, you know, so that they're waiting on truth, which is like waiting on God. And also to give them, we're, they're, they're so used to getting prepackaged lessons and told what it means that they're not used to struggling to see the truth. And that has implications for their spiritual life as well. You need to be able to struggle to wait on God in your spiritual life as well. So when teachers see the value, they begin to want to understand this. And then it's just practice. And what we're so impressed because these dedicated people, they're the forefront of this movement. They're out taking the, these ideas, the vision, and the tools. And they are really transforming their classrooms for these children. It's very hopeful. So one of the things that I've come across, actually, after I went to the dinner that, that you all had, I was speaking somewhere else and I started telling people about this, you know, um, classical schools, liberal education. And, and I had a, a number of people push back and say, um, but that's not for every kid or that's elitist to be talking about such sort of high level things. How can a child who um, is from a, uh, an underprivileged area who's worrying about just having food for the, that's not a school for them. So this must be a vision that cannot work on for everyone. And so what does this mean? How can you speak to Catholic education um, in a way that communicates that this works for everyone? Or, or how do you bring those principles into a different setting so that it, it works to reach those children who are coming from different backgrounds or, or whose parents really just all they want is for them to get a job and get out of the basement when they're older? I think what St. Jerome has, um, has answered it well. Dr. Hanby's answered yeah, it well. I've encountered that objection, too, and I have to say it really, I really bristle at it. <laughs> you know, the idea that beauty is only for rich kids? I mean, talk, that, talk about an elitist idea. Or that, the, you know, that the treasures of the, of, of the Christian tradition and, and of this, 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 this wealth of, of, of music and art uh, and literature is only for you know the parents of well-educated professionals. Um, that seems to me to be the objection itself. It seems to me um, uh, is fundamentally elitist, and and it's odd, particularly in Catholic circles, when you consider that at one time, for instance, poor immigrant communities composed comprised mostly of day laborers built churches that we couldn't even begin to build for ourselves now. You know, the, the, the idea, you know, since the 1950s or what have you, when churches began looking like pizza huts, um, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, 
the, the objection almost leaves, leaves me speechless, but it seems just manifestly false. And, it seem, and it's also betrayed by the experience of what happens when you actually bring kids from different backgrounds into a setting and, and, and tell them that these things are, are for them. Um, and that, that they're theirs too. And they too can understand Shakespeare. Uh, or, or decipher a, 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 a beautiful painting or something. So um, uh, that's my response. <laughs> and I would just add that it is not more difficult. So people who say it's elitist or it's too rigorous, it's not more difficult. Because it's more engaging and because it's more human, the kids who struggle are suddenly interested. So they're not just worrying about what they're going to fill in on a multiple choice question. They're caring about this character in a story that we're talking about the moral of the story. They become very animated. They're able to describe it. And eventually, they're able to write better because they're engaged. So it's just, it's actually, I think it's probably best for the children at the bottom who are disengaged and don't think of themselves as a learner because they're allowed to begin to think of themselves as a learner. And in the conversation in the class, their opinions are valued. Yeah, I would add, too, that um, if it's true, and I think it is, that parents want their children to be happy, the second question you ask is, what does that mean to you? Right? Does it mean working for Google or Amazon? Or does it mean being a doctor or a lawyer? Not everybody's going to be a doctor or a lawyer, either. But to know what is true, uh, what my friend Father Shaw always, Father James Shaw calls what is, you know, what is the case in the world, Knowing what the truth of things is makes you happier. You know, it, it makes your, your expectations more realistic, and it leads you into ways that maybe you wouldn't have expected. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the whole tradition tells us that not everybody can be a philosopher or a theologian. But you don't have to be a professional philosopher or a theologian to come to appreciate that those disciplines matter, and they arrive at truths that are helpful to you. You know, that you've been exposed to and that you can follow in your life. And I, I often tell people when they, I used to teach philosophy, and when I did, I tell the students, look, if you remember nothing else after this course, I want you to know that at least there are answers, and you once heard them. <laughs> <laughs> or there are questions. Or there are questions, <laughs> right? But, and they're there. And that people who are reliable or at least you know, somewhat trustworthy uh, have given you some reason to believe that those doubts that are out there in the world can be answered. And I, I think there's a large gap. I, I like very much what Michael was saying about the, the crisis within the church itself. I think there's a large gas, gas, uh, gap of confidence and willingness to be, if I may use the term, militant in the church. That there's, Do we have something that the world ought to know about and that will actually make the world a happier place? You know, if you look at the family statistics that the sociologists have put together stable families with a mother and a father and children and um, just the results for the, for the children are immensely better in scientific sociological terms. This isn't an ideology or a, some kind of spirituality that, that Catholics have invented. It's just demonstrably true. So um, look, it, it may be hard to get over those first and second questions, but really, if you really do care about your kids being happy, you don't think they have to go to the Harvard Medical School or law school. They don't necessarily have to go to a business school and, and work in one of the Fortune 500 companies. There's another, there's another kind of learning, as somebody once said, that <laughs> is quite important to being a human being. 
And that's an argument I think you can make to lots of people. Even the best school is part of the surrounding culture. It sits in a location. It's in a neighborhood. It's in a city. It's, it's, it draws from people who perhaps don't arrive at the vision. So how, do, how can you envision this kind of an approach to education being in every Catholic school? Is that even possible? But in, even in your specific schools that you've dealt with, how do you prevent the culture from corrupting what you're trying to do? How do you um, help your students and your teachers and your faculty bring what you have into the culture? What we're seeing is because there's so much rich, richness on the inside, it crowds out the other stuff. They're able to look a little bit more critically about the, uh, toward the digital world, some of the older kids. Mm -hmm. They're able to look when they see the story of history, they're more able to identify the errors of our age and the hollowness of it and, and sort of the loneliness and despair that an that a educational system and a society without God is generating. And so they're able to, these are of course the older kids, but the younger kids are so wrapped up in the story that they're not as interested. We don't usually encourage the scholastic book fair <laughs> because there's not that much good literature. So when they're feeding on rich stories, scripture, stories of the saints, that's what's filling their imaginations. And the other stuff looks like pablum after that. Michael, does that require um, putting sort of boundaries on, on uh, or communicating boundaries to families about how they're raising children? And, and you know, how do you, how do you keep the culture out? How do you keep, or at least the, the toxic elements of the culture? Well, I should qualify what I'm about to say by saying, you know, I, I work in a graduate school, not a day-to-day -day in this no. kind of a setting, so I, I'm not, not speaking from the front lines or from a different front, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard. I'm not sure you can. I mean, it, entirely. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't want to paint an overly sort of um, rosy picture about, about how easy this is. Um, you know, the, my precious here has um, <laughs> transformed um, the way we live, the way we think, the way people, kids of a certain generation, or the kids of my, of my kids' generation, um, communicate with each other. It's obliterated spaces, places where they used to, I mean, who would have thought that you would look back with nostalgia on, on teenagers hanging out at the shopping mall as a wholesome thing? Um, but compa in comparison to the places that, that, that kids have to go now, it, it seems um, uh, quite lovely in retrospect. Um, um, I'm not sure, I, I don't think you can, I mean, you can, within the school, um, communicate uh, a certain vision and try and make that beautiful and compelling. You can create a space where they're actually free um, from the claims of the ring of power upon them, where they can actually uh, live for a while without uh, the pressures that this generates. Um, but ultimately, what you're doing, you're, but you can't build, or you can't cloister them. Um, you know, they carry the entire world around. Um, uh, a world of possibilities around, or so they think of it, in their pockets. Um, or at least many of them do, or their friends do, or their parents do, or, you know, it, there, there, there's no uh, fence, ultimately, that can be erected. You can hope to affect their tastes in such a way that they can become more detached with respect to these things. 
So part of what education, I think, is in that context um, is shaping freedom. Uh, you know, educating their, their, their freedom in a way, educating in the, their desires in a way so that they themselves can begin to take a more a, a, a critical distance to these things. Um, you know, if you want to carry a cell phone, you have to be more like a hobbit than, than like Boromir <laughs> because it will overpower, it will, it will overpower you. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a constant challenge, uh, I, I assume, in schools. I, I, it's certainly a challenge within our families. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't want to paint uh, an overly rosy picture of how easy this is because it isn't. But, um, but it's better to fight than just to give in, right. you know. I just want to say my wife is here, and she's done some evaluations of charter schools here in D.C. where there's literally uh, piano wire, or what do we call that, accordion wire or barbed wire, mm. around the physical plant of the school because these are just little islands of some sort of order. Um, they aren't classical Catholic schools, but they're schools that try to adopt some sort of, of alternative educational philosophy and, and just fight. So I think Michael's last point about fighting, we, we can't know how to win the battle ahead of time until you're in the actual battle. And you just fight it wherever you happen to be with the best tools that you have available. And, you know, it's, it's God's world. We, we take care of the proper sowing, and he gives the increase. Okay. All right, let's open it up for a few questions. Um. Hey, um, is, this, is this on? Uh, questions. My name is Mariana Barrias. This questions for uh, Dr. Hanby. Um, I would just was curious about the the sequence that you mentioned uh, twice doing um, ancient Greek Greeks to medieval study, studies. Um, and I was um, my background is in. I did a great books program for undergrad. Mm-hmm. So we started with the ancient Greeks. We moved. You know, four years later, we did the you know more modern. So my question is with um, and I found that very helpful because um, it gave me an under- understanding of where we came from, where, we're, um, where we are now, and where we're going. So my question is, um, why, why do ancient, uh, ancient Greeks and medieval twice? Um, and how do you, uh, suppose, uh, expect this educational model, this sequence, to prepa- uh, pr- prepare students to engage with other people from who don't have that um, other people who don't have that background and to understand um, the world that we're in today sure uh, well a couple of things with with st. Jerome's uh, uh, st. Jerome Academy I should say since they're now uh, two st. Jerome's uh, with st. Jerome's Academy of course it is a it is in both an elementary and a middle school so the way that it just programmatically works out is, for instance, uh, the second grade year is the Greek year. And so they, they learn about Greece. Uh, they read, uh, you know, various Greek myths. They'll, they'll, they'll um, have little par- Greek parties. And, I mean, they'll just sort of immerse themselves imaginatively uh, in this. And then third grade is Roman. And, and so you, you cycle through it once in primary school. And then they're combined a bit in middle, middle school. There's a, a, an ancient year, which is both Greek and Roman, uh, a medieval year and and uh, an early modern that brings you um, uh, to or to, uh, I've lost the sequence now um, and uh, an American year and um, with respect to the background I mean these kids 
don't exactly know uh, or, or come to us knowing that they have ancient Greece as uh, part of their background. But virtual, but if, but if you live in the modern West, um, you, you do. So in part, the question of, of how this helps people, I mean, this is the history of the world. This is the history of, of Western civilization. This is the history that has formed uh, sensibilities of, of all of us in some form or fashion, irrespective of, of, of where we come from. So one of the great things actually about studying the ancients is that it's not um, uh, studying my history to the exclusion of your history. Uh, in, in a sense, it's 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 studying uh, universal history uh, to to a certain degree. Um, the other th- advantage, I think, of approaching it in this way is the one that you already mentioned. I mean, there's a tendency. I think you began with the 13 colonies model and working your way out. Um, the, to my mind, that reinforces the notion that we exist uh, kind of in the center of the universe, and uh, it also has the capacity at least it can be done well I understand in a way that doesn't that, that that doesn't confirm this but it has the capacity of reinforcing the sort of Whiggish idea that all of history was simply uh, a uh, uh, sort of reaches its its conclusion and its culmination in us what it does not tend to do is raise the possibility that ancient cultures might actually have something critical to say about us or there might be dimensions about our own time and our own presumptions that are, that are departures from a truth that those who came before us understood. And so one of the advantages of proceeding this way is, is that it relativizes the centrality of uh, uh, the time period in which we live and whose assumptions we breathe in with the air. And that's part of the point, to be able, if, if one wants to be free of or to be able to stand critically in judgment of the spirit of the age, um, one has to have some experience of the the thought world of, of of other peoples who didn't understand nature and the human being and and, and God in the way that we as twentieth or twenty first century Americans do, so that's part of the rationale behind proceeding that way. I'm sure there were other dimensions of your question that I've lost the the thread on, but I hope that answers that. I don't want to take too long okay. trying to do it. All right, another question over there. I was going to mention your. Uh, the comment on the 1950s churches and the Pizza Huts is a real slight on Pizza Huts everywhere. So. Um, I apologize. Yeah. To, uh... <laughs> um, so my question is, I think there's been a really good discussion on the sort of chasm between the liberal education that really sets our hearts free and sort of the education that most people are receiving you know, today right now. And I think of my own education as sort of being somewhat mediocre and like uh, Dr. Henry said, I think in some ways I look back on the things that I've learned more in my adulthood and realize, wow, there's a real providence in some of the things God's put in front of me, and I'm glad for that. Um, but one of my questions, the question I have, I guess, would be more of um, a projection or sort of use your draw from your prophetic powers type of thing. Uh, is it you've made a really good description on where we sit today, and it seems pretty bleak in a lot of ways. There's a lot of deep anthropological problems that we're facing because of the education we receive now. And so my question is, I do a lot of public policy uh, in Nebraska. I I represent the Nebraska bishops at at the state capitol and do legislative work there. And I I, I get nauseous pretty frequently in discussions on education policy because 
all of the education policy and frankly a lot of the uh, economic development policy centers around some concept of votech or career readiness or STEM education and it's just ad nauseum. And so I guess my, my question here is, if we already are facing the problems that we face today, what, what's your projections on the problems we're gonna face? Were you, were we not, we aren't even teaching a civic education now. We're not even trying to prepare people to live in a uh, re, you know, democratic republic. We're just simply getting people ready to be functionaries of labor. And so what's gonna come with that and, and sort of what, what's the trajectory that we may have there? <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> Try to be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it look, look, it looks bad. It looks very bad. Uh, my wife told me this morning at breakfast, she was reading an article, I think, in the Washington Post, that 40% of millennials in the United States hate America. 40% of the young people in, in this country hate America. And probably if you started to look at ancient Greece and Rome, and the Middle Ages, they would even have a lower opinion of, of those places. They've been, they've been catechized to believe that these are just horribly oppressive, unequal, misogynistic, uh, homophobic uh, societies. So the, you know, the stack of, of illusion is very high. And I think that the, the, uh, the only attractors out there are sex, which, of course, has a limited sell-by date, if I can put it that way, and uh, some kind of career. But I think that people, you know, most human beings just simply aren't content with that kind of life. That the, the you know, th sociologically, the three things that give people meaning and actually health in their lives are family, religion, and nation. Those three things are sort of the concrete, historically, the concrete connections that human beings have that, that stabilize them about the world and enable them to live fairly tranquil lives. So I think you know, we're, we're dealing with a house of cards that is probably not going to be able to persist for too much longer. Whether The, the way I put the, the new mid, Middle Ages thing is we, we've gone into a dark age, but the technology is still working for the time being. You know, the lights stay on and there's food and, and whatnot. But Otherwise, the culture is pretty much collapsed. It's not, it's not being conveyed. So I don't know the, what we can predict about this. I mean, maybe there's a turnaround. There, there are periods of kind of cultural decline and then cultural uh, uh, re renewal, of course. But we don't know. I mean, we just have to just, just stay out of it. But I would say that the signs are not good. And I want to repeat what I said in my initial remarks, that we should not delude ourselves about this and prepare ourselves. I'm not exactly proposing the Benedict option, which I'm sure all of us have heard about that Rod Dreher has been proposing, although I think that analysis is very good. The question is then what is the, you know, what is the answer if, if, if those terrible things are coming down the line? Maybe uh, our Supreme Court will protect religious liberty and, and schools like the ones we're talking about here to continue to operate, but for how long and you know, what, what limitations will be placed on them, I don't know. But look, we're we do what we can. You know, we're, we're, we're in a world that's a fallen world. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that. And we've got some, we've, we've got a Catholic tradition that has survived the collapse of entire civilizations, cultures, empires, etc. So it may be a long and painful turnaround, 
but it's happened before. I don't think, by the way, that our schools are actually turning out uh, those kinds of um, laboring functionaries. I mean, maybe for uh, a, a, a narrow and actually fairly uh, elite slice of the population, um, but for a, a, a vast many people, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say that you know our, the schools are almost worse than useless. Um, I mean, it's not providing. Uh, uh, Votech training, as you put it, uh, for uh, in a great many areas where we could actually use it, um, but a lot of those kinds of jobs also are uh, disappearing to automation. I just heard an interesting uh, radio story yesterday about a really uh, difficult set of working conditions in warehousing in Memphis for all the people who get your get our overnight goods to us. Um, uh, some of you may have also heard it. Really, really brutal um, uh, conditions, long hours, high heat. Uh, uh, high quotas of handling packages and so forth. Um, these are really hard jobs that, for which there's no training that are likely to be replaced soon uh, by the actual robots for whom the jobs were envisioned. Um, what the, the, the future of education, broadly speaking, is in a world that increasingly is looking like that, it's, it's hard to say. I, I tend to agree with Robert that it doesn't appear uh, very, um, uh, I'm not very optimistic about it. Okay, let's, let's take one more question. Uh, so I'm an economist who does research on education, and I have a worry about what we call the supply side. So all of this uh, renaissance of Catholic liberal arts education is beautiful. <coughs> However, it really has been undertaken by individuals who are already very busy, whose lives are full, who are raising families, who have full-time jobs. This is being, these schools are being conceived late at night, in the weekend, by people who have full lives. And so I worry about the limited amount of such people. I worry about the limited amount of donors who find these endeavors. I worry about the fact that these people have very little support within the church, in governments. So as much as I want to see this movement grow exponentially, I really worry about the practical uh, ability we have to do this. So would you like to comment on this? Quick, just like a minute each and then. Well, I, I did forget to mention with respect to St. Jerome Institute that not only do we welcome students, we also welcome donors. <laughs> so, 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 so thank you for re reminding me of that. Um, uh, you know, yes, everything you say is true. Um, and I'm not sure that there's a, 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 a fix-all recipe for it, other than that um, if this really is, as I was saying earlier, um, if, if what's being proposed here is really true and, 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 and really good, then you know, we have to trust that, that more of those people uh, will continue um, uh, to emerge because this is what must be done and, in fact, what you know, God is asking us to do. I agree. <laughs> the supply side is very difficult. We cannot keep up with all the demand to train teachers. We, um, we've served uh, 600 students or teachers at our programs representing schools of more than 20,000, and we just can't keep up. We're debating now whether we have to do some online courses, even though we don't want to do that because teaching's relational. We really need to get something out there. Uh, I think it would help a lot. I mean, one of the main obstacles is that. Um, we pray that our bishops and their superintendents, they're not familiar with this. So it seems, um, it, it, 
because they're not familiar, they're not yet comfortable that it will meet the demands of standardized testing and standards. And I think what they have not yet seen is that this, the seven liberal arts are the tools of thinking and learning that go so far beyond standards. Standards are the lowest common denominator. Once entire dioceses can embrace this, and some of them are, we're working with probably 10 dioceses, that they're seeing you can't deny that this is working. Now they're trying to get on board and figure out how to train the teachers. So that's hopeful. Since we're at Nova's Day uh, venue, I can't, help, I can't help but recall the remark of St. Jose Maria who said that no truly apostolic activity ever failed for lack of money. And as my friend Michael Novak used to say, say God moves monies. So I think if you, stay, if you stay faithful, if you stay faithful to the vision, you know, you can, you can do what you, what, what you think is important to do. I mean, we all have jobs, but we also do other things because we, we think it's important that we, we get them done. Um, it may not be something that catches on everywhere, but I also would like to see our bishops do something. I was over at the, uh, the Synod on Youth in, in, in Rome during October, and one of the most dismaying moments was when a bishop got up and talked about how sectarian homeschooling as if public schools and even, sad to say, most Catholic schools are not themselves so ideologically lame that we can just trust them more than we can parents to, to raise their own children. But look, we're here, and, and a lot of us are, 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 are now very much aware of the problem, even within Catholic schools. So what you want to get done can get done, and then we'll just rely on uh, a lot of very um, a lot, of, a lot of very clever Catholic entrepreneurs to help find us the means to do this. So I, I, I would close that out um, just by saying that I think we have to be convinced that if our faith is worth it, if it's the most important thing in our lives, then we need to communicate that within the church because our numbers are dropping, which means souls are being lost. And that education is the way you bring people in. And so a vision of education that accomplishes that is what we have to have as, as a conviction. And to have the confidence that it really works, it makes people happy, it, it, it is what God wants. And the church needs to be behind that. So I think you wanna end. Hi everyone, um, my name is Rosemary Eldridge. And as we often hear after Sunday Mass, please stay in your seats, I have a few announcements. Um, first I wanna thank Mary, thank you so much for your wonderful job moderating. And to our panelists, Bob, Michael, and Elizabeth, Thank you guys um, so much for tackling this important issue um, and taking it to the people. And I know that we still have some people who wanted to ask some questions. Um, we have a reception afterwards, and I encourage you to continue the conversation there. Take this conversation to your family and to your friends um, so we, in order that we can um, get the word out just a little bit more. Um, I'd also like to thank our co-sponsors, um, uh, the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, and especially their vice president, Chris Ware. This panel tonight was the brainchild of many conversations between our two organizations, and I'm great, so grateful for all the work that ICLE does across the country. Um, tonight is a really great example of why I love my job here at the CIC so much. It fills my heart with so much joy to see so many people together engaging in their faith and their intellect in order to better not only themselves but their community, and I hope to see many more of you at our other upcoming events. This Saturday at 10.30 a.m., we have a family day here at the CIC. Um, it's something I started to do last year and been getting a lot of great response for it. Um, 
We're going to have crafts projects, some readings for the kids, and also, not to mention, we're going to have Chick-fil-A as well. Um, so if you haven't decided um, on any activity to do this weekend, come to this fun uh, family-filled activity with us. Um, next week, we have Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the from the University of South Carolina, Jennifer Frey, who is going to join us for part three of our literature series. Uh, the author that's going to be tackled at this session was mentioned tonight by Bob. Um, they're going to be tackling um, uh, Walker Percy. The event is called The Catastrophe of Self, Walker Percy on Sin and Transcendence. Uh, for more details on these events and up and others of our upcoming events, please check out our events calendar on our website, like our social media pages, and join our listserv. Also, if you enjoyed this event or any of the events that the CSE puts on, uh, you can also access our donation page on our website as well. <laughs> uh, finally, I invite you to stay for the reception that will go until 8.30. Thank you all so much for coming out, and God bless.